0: G'day humans! Welcome to the safe space for dangerous conversations, the show where the chitty chat may be comfortable, but the ideas and the topics and the perspectives that we address are confronting to one or both political parties, or ideally to all rigid cultural worldviews. This is not a show where we shout slogans at one another or get hostile, it's where we come together to jointly understand things, even things that might make everybody else uncomfortable. This week on the show, science, microbiology, viruses, vaccines, tiny, wily microorganisms that can crash economies, imprison entire populations, grind global travel to a halt, demolish our normal social customs, wipe out industries and human lungs with blind but ingenious power. This might just be the most uncomfortable conversation we can have right now because of where Australia currently sits. If you're outside of Australia, then you're dealing with your own coronavirus maelstrom, but let me reflect a little bit about what's going on here. Australia had basically eliminated community transmission of coronavirus, Uh, using all of the scientific principles that everybody, that all experts and epidemiologists knew that we should undertake. Stay home, shut down, uh, don't go to school and work, uh, don't shake people's hands, social distancing, all of that. And that was highly effective. The other column, the other pillar, the other strategy, the other component was to completely seal the borders and prevent any new cases from coming in from outside. Now, this is a massive undertaking for a country like Australia, which is so reliant on foreign travel, on inbound tourism, on international students coming to study at our universities. Um, I've spoken to a lot of Americans who say, oh, you couldn't possibly do that here, we're too big. But really, in some respects, it's a more difficult thing to do in a country like Australia because the, uh, the connections with the rest of the world for a nation that is essentially stranded in the wrong part of the globe, for what it actually is doing, what it actually is up to, are even more important. But Australia took the the step of uh, essentially imprisoning every, banning every, anyone who's not an Australian from coming into into Australia and simultaneously imprisoning all returning Australians in hotels. I mean, they're four-star hotels, they're not prisons, but it, nonetheless, it's a, it's a prison if you're not allowed to leave it, uh, for two weeks upon return. And that way, you would ensure that, no coronavirus entered the country while you are trying to get your hand, your arms around the pandemic here at home. And throughout March, April and May, that was basically successful. And Australia really looked like it was on track to becoming a New Zealand, which did essentially the same thing, but with an even harsher lockdown. Although to be fair to Australia, New Zealand's lockdown in the moment didn't seem to work any better than Australia's did. Australia's was a bit looser. You could still sort of go to the beach. You weren't allowed to loll around on the beach and have picnics, but you're allowed to walk directly across the beach into the water and go for a surf. you were allowed to jog along the beach. you were allowed to use, do things for exercise. You were still able to go to coffee shops and restaurants and get takeaway, even though you couldn't sit in them. Whereas in New Zealand, it was full on lockdown, you could nothing. You couldn't even go for takeaway. Um, you couldn't, you know, you go go outside without getting a fine. And effectively. Uh, I'll get complaints about saying, well, actually, if you got a permit and you downloaded it from the internet, then you were able to go outside without a fine as long as you filled out subsection 14C. You know what I mean? It was a lot harsher. And Australia was successful without going full crazy lockdown, just by relying on the epidemiology, ramping up testing, massive contact tracing, uh, really throwing everything at the problem. And many people, myself included, thought that we'd sort of done it and that the end was in sight. And then the quarantine hotel arrangement in the state of Victoria, the second most populous state where Melbourne, the second most populous city, is located, uh, fell apart. It turned out that instead of Im- employing the police and the army to manage the quarantine hotels, organisations and institutions that have experience in such things, the Victorians had decided to outsource it to private firms including some firms that would, for example, send WhatsApp messages to under-trained former bouncers of nightclubs who would just get a message saying, hey, you want a part-time casual gig at one of these quarantine hotels? Inadequate training about how to seal off a pandemic, staffers going between quarantine hotels, spreading pathogens between them, without the proper protective equipment, returning home to families, seeding coronavirus back into the community. And all of that was going on without the authorities catching it. In one of the more colourful examples of a quarantine breach, there were allegations, unsubstantiated, but hey, they come from the Murdoch tabloids, so you can take that to the bank, that one of the staffers was having sex with the inbound visitors, prompting me on the ABC Afternoon show that I was presenting last week to put together this little sketch. It's a a quarantine uh, safety training ad for the new uh, staffers who are going to be working at Victoria's quarantine hotels.
1: When greeting new arrivals from abroad, be sure to always wear personal protective equipment and avoid touching, kissing and licking the guests. Do not welcome new arrivals with hot stone massages or fondue parties. As a temporary precaution, the nightly staff versus guest jelly wrestling tournament will only be held on Sunday nights. And a reminder, please keep the licking of doorknobs to a minimum, because we're committed to keeping Victoria as safe as is compatible with us not doing anything that might remotely inconvenience our normal lives.
0: That is uh, my whimsy about the situation, but I am feeling currently pretty depressed because the Victorian caseload has been all over the joint this week, but very high. It looks like today, I'm recording on Sunday, the 2nd of August, uh, the Victorian Premier is about to announce a caseload of 650 new cases today. There were were over 300 yesterday, and there were over 700 uh, on Thursday. Just to put that in context, the nation of Germany this week is in is, is bouncing between sort of average new cases of 300, 400, 600. It jumped up to 900, which alarmed everybody. But in that sort of vicinity, the state of Victoria, which has one-twelfth the population of Germany, has been recording about the same number of new daily cases. So it's gotten out of control. More than half of... Sorry, more than a quarter of all the deaths in Australia from covid have taken place in the past seven days so we thought we were out of the woods of course it's nowhere near as bad as it is abroad and i made some gentle fun of that of the us and the uk on my abc afternoon show as well i, I took a crack at doing a trump but what do you reckon when my chief of staff comes to me i
1: say what ranking is the united states they say mr president number one I say number one. Now, Obama never got a number one. Obama never got a number one in coronavirus. That's that's sad. In hospitals all over America, they say, Mr. President, it's unbelievable. The hospital has never looked like this. So full, so great. So many people coming out to hospitals. They say, Mr. President, how did you do it? I say, I don't know. I don't know. I guess I just got a nap.
0: That's my gentle ribbing of Donald Trump. And just to be an equal opportunity offender, I also uh, poked fun at the UK and Boris Johnson, uh, which I'll play you in just a moment. But before I play that, I just want to relate a positive story from this morning, which is that I was going to take the little kids. I've got two twin toddlers who were two years old to, uh, I wanted to take them out to a play center. And I, th- I felt a little bit anxious because of the increase in coronavirus. So I thought, all right, let's take them somewhere outdoors. It is the middle of winter, but it's, it's beautiful weather. It's a sunny day. It's not too chilly. And so I find this huge outdoor kind of play area that was built as part of the Sydney Olympic redevelopment when Sydney had the Olympics in the year 2000, a lot of stuff was was built on, around, on and around the Olympic site to revitalize that area where, around where the stadiums were being built. And there's this fantastic park with huge slides and it, flying foxes. What do they call those in the States? Zip lines And, you know, all kinds of things, everything that a child would love. So I get out there. It's a beautiful, sun, sunny Sunday. And it's in Western Sydney, which is demographically – more multi-ethnic and lower socioeconomic. Uh, God, that's horrible jargon, isn't it? Why do I use terms like that? I mean, I've got to stop doing that. It's a it, poor it's a poor it's poor non it's a poor non-white area. Uh, lower socioeconomic background sounds so pretentious. Um, so there are a lot of there are a lot of poorer people and a lot of uh, non-white people there. I'm probably the whitest person out of about a thousand people. It's a huge park. There's probably a thousand people there. There are families having picnics. Some people have pitched little tents so they can you know don't get sunburnt during the day i'd say 5 to 10% of the people there are white uh about a half of all the women have uh have headscarves on they're either they they're either of south asian extraction or they're arabic uh and yeah basically some combination of mostly i'd say they're pro- probably about a third asian probably about half uh, arab or indian and probably you know the rest miscellaneous mongrels like me And it's strange to me that I can say that. In other words, it's strange to me that I would notice the ethnic breakdown because a year ago I wouldn't have noticed at all. Like I wouldn't have, I just wouldn't have been able to tell you. I remember an American friend of mine coming to visit and as we walked past some people in the street, he said, so would they have been like uh, Aborigines or were they like Pacific Islanders? What, what exactly? Were, and I was like, oh, I didn't. I mean, I literally didn't, didn't see it at all. I didn't notice. I didn't pay any attention to it. I'd have to go back and look. But his eye was trained to see it. He was sort of inculcated in a culture where noticing that was important. And I thought we'd grown out of that. One thing that I loved about Australia was the fact that I wouldn't notice it. Maybe that sounds naive. Of course, the white guy doesn't have to notice it because he's dripping with white privilege. But I really think that part of the ethos of of intentionally not noticing it is something that has kept Australia together as a great multi-ethnic success story. And I stood on top of this hill where the Slippery dips, the slides went down the side. (laughs) Slippery dip is such a wonderful Australian term, isn't it? Yes, that's actually what we call them, Americans. Slippery dips, that's what we call slides. Uh, They're going down the side of the hill. I'm standing up on the top of the hill with my kids and looking out at this vista of all these people from all over the world with all these different religious faiths and customs and tastes and ways of cooking and ways of thinking and ways of doing things the different ways they choose to have breakfast, the different ways they pray, and everybody having no issue with each other, no sense of a chip on anyone's shoulder, as far as I could tell, no animosity, big smiles all around, incredibly warm and friendly atmosphere. It made me proud it made me realise how small and petty so many of the arguments and debates that I see online, especially on sites like Twitter, are. It made me feel like there is hope and something to be treasured in the experiment that Australia and hopefully most of America is still committed to, an experiment where people can actually try to make where they come from and their historical grievances and the disadvantages that they've had or the advantages that they've had, the components of their tribe less important than the mission of living a happy life and breaking bread with each other and being part of a, a national communal mission to live well and to get along to not fight over little bits and pieces. A sense, I suppose, that there's more than enough, that the pie is more than big enough for all of us and we don't need to be squabbling over a zero-sum interpretation of things. We don't, it's not, you know, one person's advantage is not another person's disadvantage. We can all get along. It sort of made me realise when I said that I wouldn't have noticed the ethnicities of the people a year ago, what I mean is that the past year has been so traumatising, so brutalizing to so many of us that it's left me with more of a a sensitivity, and i don 't mean that in necessarily a good way, more of a sensitivity towards difference, more of a hardness towards the other. I certainly receive a lot more hate than I did before. the massively important and overdue conversation that's happening in the United States about police violence and the massively important social unrest that happened after the murder of George Floyd have since somewhat devolved into a kind of calcified, doctrinaire, orthodox uh, war in which you have to... I mean, you have to basically pick sides and you're not able to... And the kind of comedy that I'm talking about, the kind of communal sense of ignoring one's culture and race in the interests of just going down a slippery dip or a slide with your kids and another person's kids, that has somehow been condemned as being naive the sunny optimism of the stupid person who thinks that we can all just get along. I hope we can regain it. I hope we can retain it. I hope it's still part of our... I hope it's still woven into the fabric of who we are, especially as Australians, and I have to believe that it still is as Americans as well. That we don't have to devolve into camps, into warring camps where one group is condemned to their own white privilege while another group is condemned to always being oppressed, where there's a kind of oppression Olympics where each identity group that you belong to either ratchets you up or down a hierarchy of oppression. It was so lovely just being out in the sunshine with people who who weren't treating each other as their histories, as their skin colours, as their headscarves. Anyway, that was my little bit of whimsy for today. It made me optimistic and hopeful, and I hope that we can refocus on those things that bind us all together instead of the things that corrode us and divide us, even if those things are couched in terms like justice and social justice and anti-racism and anti-fascism. Let's take a listen at my hopelessly ambitious attempt at doing a Boris Johnson impression. Uh, the first voice you'll hear is uh, my newscaster voice.
1: Meanwhile in Britain, Prime Minister Bogus Jumbleson has lashed out at critics of his government's coronavirus response. Alastair Molskin reports from London. It was supposed to be a publicity stunt promoting Britain's success in combating coronavirus. The Prime Minister, wearing a leather aviator helmet and goggles, had planned to fly around Parliament House on a jetpack Skywriting the words winning against Covid from a flare stuck in his bottom. But he crashed into Big Ben and spent three hours dangling from the big hand of the clock, 230 feet above the Palace of Westminster. After he was winched to safety, he insisted his government's messaging on masks, lockdowns and coronavirus has been crystal clear. Crystal clear,
0: crystal clear. Wear a mask on your face. If you don't have a mask, just wear your face on your face. And if you don't have a face, wear the mask on your foot or don't or do. And I'm terribly sorry, I've just disappeared up my own anus. Oh, look, there's the flare. And that's my Boris Johnson from last week on ABC Radio Sydney. Uh, so while we make fun of where the US and the UK are at and while we breathe, of course, a sigh of relief that Australia is not in that position. There is also a, a sense that we need to know where this is going to go now. So I wanted to have a conversation with someone who understands the science of developing a vaccine and what makes viruses so cool from an evolutionary point of view, so resilient, so hardy and capable and wily and evasive. They're such simple little strands of brainless RNA that you would think that they should be easier to counter. But because of their simplicity, they find these ingenious, shape shifting ways to bring us to our knees. Peter Kolchinski is, he got a PhD in virology from Harvard University. And he's now a biotech investor. He's a scientist, but he's a, he, he works as an investor where he identifies biotech companies and he invests in the ones that he see, regards as being the most promising, which means that he, has the, he wears the hat not only of somebody who understands the science, but somebody who thinks forward about the most fruitful ways in which that science is going to be applied to real life. If you are an Australian uh, listener, it's worth bearing in mind for this conversation that when he talks about Medicare, when we talk about Medicare in the American context, that's the program for old people. It only kicks in at age 65. So if there's a bit of ambiguity or you don't quite understand why we're talking about only old people for Medicare, Medicare also happens to be the name of the of Australia's uh, public health system that, is, that applies to everybody, not just the elderly. And I know it's boring, but leave a rating or a review on an app where you can do so. so a lot of us use... Apps like like I use Overcast, which is a great app for listening to podcasts. Unfortunately, it has no functionality to actually leave a rating or a review. so if I wanna, if I want to do the right thing by podcasts I love, I also have to have my conventional old uh, tacky Apple podcast app that I don 't even like, which is just sitting there on my phone exclusively so that I can be a good citizen and leave ratings and reviews. Because that's the way that a lot of people discover podcasts. They're just surfing around looking for things in the store and something pops up. And it only pops up if a lot of people are talking about it or rating it. Please do it. I know it's boring. But right now, just pull out your phone and either on the, the Google Android app or the Apple app, leave a rating or a review. The system then understands that you like this show and that you're engaging with it. Follow Peter Kolchinsky and enjoy this conversation. Tell us us what you do.
2: Yeah, so uh, I invest in biotechnology companies, Um, you know, companies that make new drugs, diagnostics, medical devices. I'm a scientist by training, and uh, I'm always trying to figure out how we're going to solve these new problems. Um, Usually, you know, these are things that matter to, you know, certain small subset of people, you know, uh, breast cancer, let's say, or Parkinson's. Um, but now COVID matters to the entire world, and so my team's studying all the ways that we're going to crack that nut.
0: When you say your team is studying how to crack that nut, does that mean they're studying who to invest in, who's going to crack that nut, or are they trying to crack that nut themselves?
2: Yeah, well, you know, it's, it's actually like a lot of people, I feel, uh, on the one hand, are doing their jobs. On the other hand, they feel like they're contributing to, you know, this great global effort, you know, to solve a common problem. So on the one hand, yes, we are trying to figure out, are there investments we should make? Uh, that take COVID into account, um, you know, and uh, we have made some investments in uh, companies making vaccines, companies making drugs. But at the same time, you know, we don't, for example, publish our research. We this, created this giant map of all the different technologies and vaccines and development for COVID. And we put it online for the entire world to see because we thought that it was important to help uh, coordinate the global effort. Um, and not just use that knowledge in order to make our own investment decisions.
0: And do you, are you investing in small uh, companies that wouldn't otherwise have resources, or are you investing? Are you sort of piggybacking on larger companies that have have you know, resources? It's, it's
2: across it's across the spectrum. So my my firm, RA Capital, uh, we we've been around now for um, boy uh, eighteen years. Um, I've been an investor, and um, we've got about ninety people. Uh, And we invest across basically all markets. We'll invest in public companies, we'll invest in private companies, and we'll even form companies of our own. We just follow the science wherever it takes us. And uh, sometimes we're collaborating with a lot of other investors to, you know, provide a ton of funding to a company doing some advanced work, um, you know, phase three clinical studies of something. And sometimes we're uh, alone cutting a small check to, you know, a group in a laboratory just you know, planting the seed of an idea. Um, But we're really focused on new things. So we don't invest in very many companies that are already out there selling a a product. We're always on the
0: cutting edge. Right. And this might be a stupid question, Peter, but how do you start as an investor? Like, how did you make the money in the first place? Or did you start very small in this same industry? By
2: accident. So I I did not indeed, um, you know, think that I was going to become an investor. I went into science um, because my dad told me when, when um, I remember as a a young teenager, you know, I think we were on a beach somewhere and my dad, you know, was having a deep conversation with me because really those were the only conversations he knew how to have uh, with me, uh, you know, in the little time that we had together. He was he was working a lot.
0: That's he a said, good dad. Know, for me, That's a good dad who only no, knows how to have deep conversations. Dad, yeah, yeah. You know,
2: my, my dad is great, you know, and he's looking to connect with his son and he decides to have a deep conversation about the future and your career. And he said, you know, uh, my career w- has been in computers and it's served me well and I've written the the computer wave but I think that that wave, you know, is is uh, cresting, and I think that there's a new wave for you, you know, biotechnology. So basically, my dad totally missed, you know, Google and Facebook <laughs> and all that stuff, right? You know, um, but he he was he just leapfrogs
0: from one revolution to the next.
2: Yeah, you yeah. know, I'm not I'm not complaining. Biotechnology has been uh, an an amazing field, you know, just uh, blossoming so so much knowledge. Um, and, uh, I was like, all right, right, dad, I'm, I'm going to study biology. Uh, and so, um, I, from that moment forward, uh, I read about biology. I studied biology. I took all the biology classes I could, um, all the laboratory work that I could in college. And in college, I actually saw the movie outbreak with, mm. uh, Dustin Hoffman, right. You know, trying to save the world from, uh, an Ebola like virus. Wearing a spacesuit doing it, and I just thought that is super cool. I want to wear a spacesuit and work with viruses.
0: I have vague recollections, so, Peter, of like helicopters, like napalming whole towns or something in that movie. It's been like 20 years since I saw it, but is yeah, that well, is that about know, right? It's,
2: it, it's really important to, you know, beat the virus. You've so got to get rid of the virus. Oh, yeah, because yeah, otherwise the army will, you know, napalm the citizens. If a little right? bit of napalm
0: so, is what it takes, then so be it.
2: Yeah, so, you know, I feel like today my job is to protect the world from basically... Global obliteration by the army with napalm. There
0: will be a movie in the future in which you will be played uh, by <laughs> Timothy Chalamet or some creature as yet unborn uh, on your we'll, your quest to save the globe.
2: We'll we'll see about that. Uh, you know, see if we can bring Dustin Hoffman back. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, so I thought it was a cool movie, and I was like, "That's it. I want to be a virologist." Right. And um, and I, I was at uh, Cornell School in upstate New York um, that uh, really has a lot of like agriculture and animal husbandry research and when i want to do uh you know virus research there in in college uh the only virus that they really had to work on was uh this canine parovirus, which was widely known among all veterinarians as the virus that made dogs Shit in their office in 1977. It basically swept the globe, and all veterinarians are shell shocked by how much diarrhea they were, you know, awash in from all the dogs in the world getting this virus that just popped into existence. It evolved from a cat virus, and so cats basically gave dogs the runs. Right. right, and so this was the virus that I studied, um, and you know, then I wanted to go to grad school and get my PhD in, in uh, virus research. Um, and I, I went to grad school, uh, at Harvard and it, they had 40 virology labs, you know, it's the leading, you know, school for doing virus research, but they were basically two viruses, herpes and HIV, and neither of them were going to get you a date, right? You know, so (laughs) you you can, you can choose which one you want to work on. And, uh, and, and I, uh, dabbled in in each and decided i was going to work on uh hiv hiv at at the time from what i recall had 11 genes and herpes had nearly like 200 right so in terms of which one is going to be easier to understand you know hiv is far far simpler um but it's a you know really cool virus with a whole lot of tricks up its sleeve and it's really tough uh tough virus to beat um and uh i was uh learning um actually about some of the virus's uh, tricks, how it manages to evade our immune system, you know, and keep the immune system from um, neutralizing it. And uh, I realized I actually wasn't likely to invent anything great myself. And my my dad had invented uh, technologies that he'd formed his own company around and he was a CEO. And I really looked up to him, you know, for having started a business. And I thought that's what I want to be. I want to be a CEO of a biotech company. But I realized I wasn't going to invent my own technology. uh, And I should instead learn something about the business of biotechnology, so I could help those people who can invent something great, right? Uh, and it takes a lot of dedication to invent something in really any field, but especially in biotechnology. You got to be ready to, you know, dig, dig, dig for twenty years, you know, trying to find a nugget of something, and you may find nothing, mm. right? Like what a tremendous risk to take with your career. And you know, there are people that have invented cures for certain cancers. But for every one of those, there's thousands of scientists, you know, that uh, just dug, dug, down, dug and found, you know, very little uh, that uh, the public would take interest in. I mean, they learn all kinds of things, like they learn where other people should not waste their time digging. Right. It's a fruitless mm. area of research. And that's a contribution of its own kind. So I did not want to make that that kind of a, a commitment uh, to science. I really wanted to be closer to the action. And that meant helping other people that were discovering things. And that meant learning something about the business of biotech. So as I went out into after getting my PhD, and I went out into um, the industry looking for a job, I got a really great job offer from uh, a gentleman whose initials uh, are R and A uh, to he had been a a businessman um, and a founder of a biotech company.
0: Am I I supposed to to know who that person is?
2: well you can but uh, sure uh, rich aldrich but what's relevant is that R- the firm that i now run ra capital named oh, for him right sorry That's i nice. should mention that so the yeah. firm is called ra yeah, capital yeah, yeah.
1: so it's
2: named for my mentor he gave me my start and uh, you know ra capital exists because you know rich was um, you know Pretty trusting, and it was like, "Oh, I've got an account here with four million dollars. Uh, here's the username and password to log into it. Wow. Uh, why don't you wow. rec- recommend what I should be buying and selling in it? You know, which biotech stocks? You know, and that was just a small part of my job. I thought I would help him evaluate private companies that he might join as a board member, maybe get involved in things where we might start a company. You know, really learn about the business. And picking stocks was like." it wasn't what my mother or father raised me to do. You know, mm-hmm. it's not what I thought mm-hmm. I would end up doing. And I, it's, it struck me as kind of soulless, right? Because <laughs> basically, you know, as public companies, you you can research them, but at the end of the day, there's a limited amount of information that they'll give you. Um, you know, uh, you're, you're not allowed to go behind the wall, you know, and, you know, you make an investment and then this, you know, herd of investors decides whether you're going to be right or wrong, you know, making yeah. the stock go up yeah. or down. And it's, it takes you far from the science, or at least that's what I thought. But it turned out over the next couple of years that I was a little bit good and a lot lucky and I did really well uh, with my mentor's money and I caught the bug. And I was like, oh, I think I actually want to be an investor. How and, many, how many uh, dead
0: ends can you afford when you're catching that bug?
2: Um, well, let me put it this way. Um, let's just say that there are hundreds of parallel universes out there. In every other parallel universe, I'm not a biotech investor. <laughs> This is just the one where things worked out.
0: Right? What I, what I it, meant though was when you're investing, like how how many how much do you need to get right, and how much do you, how much is it a game of mm. you you can get nine nine bets wrong as long as the one pays off?
2: Yeah, well, it it is very much like that. So um, you know, I, I certainly would like to get more than ten percent of my investments right, but uh, biotech is a pretty risky field. I would not recommend anybody invest in biotech. Um, you know, it's it. it Make it your profession or don't bother. Okay, I'm just just, going to make a note
0: here. Do not invest. Do not become biotech investor in the second half Um, of my life.
2: Yes, if you want want to sleep well at night, do not dabble in biotech investing. It's crazy risky. But what I discovered was that while you can't go very deep with any one company, when you talk to every diabetes company out there and they allow you to go a few inches deep you start to get a really good sense for what's going on below the surface, right? If you can't can't go deep with anyone, go broad and mm. get to know all of them. And then you start to see certain emergent phenomena in a field. Like you get a sense for where it's going. And that actually became the, the way that RE Capital blossomed and our team grew. We, you know, wanted to know everything that's going on. All the companies working on breast cancer, all the companies working on Parkinson's disease. And, you know, we eventually uh, would, you know, get to really know private companies and there you can sign a confidentiality agreement and you can learn a lot more about their science and you can go deep with them. Um, And so when you get to know all the companies doing everything, you start to see the chessboard of human activity in, you know, as it tackles a given problem, right? Like everything that's going on. And sometimes these companies don't even know about one another right? Can you imagine somebody's like building a bishop over here and somebody else is building a knight over there and some people are working on pawns. And you can see the strategy that's emerging or at least the potential for the strategy for how you could move those different pieces around. But the pieces themselves don't understand where they are or how Mm. they could be combined because they're so focused on just developing their one drug. So it it, it turned into a really great vantage point for the emergence of this Absolutely stunning, vibrant industry that over the last twenty years has just blown up. I mean, it's like your neighborhood uh, uh, electronics uh, electronic store has turned into this giant Home Depot. I don't know if you guys have Home Depots in Australia. We but, have an equivalent. You know,
0: uh, we have an equivalent called Bunnings.
2: There you go. So you know your neighborhood, uh, you know tool shop where you could maybe get like one hammer, one saw, and a screwdriver is now turned into a Bunnings, right? Yeah. There's like no problem you can't solve, uh, you know. If you walk through the aisles of your bunnings and you know pick the right tools from the shelf, that's what biotech has become, and that's what the world's seeing now, as the whole industry turns all of its resources and ingenuity on this one problem that's plaguing us all. And it's are you cool.
0: con- are you confident that they're adequately coordinated in that mission? When you talk about one person making a bishop and another person making a a, a knight, that sounds wasteful.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it's um, well. I mean, what what's a little wasteful is when there's fifteen bishops. You know, a bishop right. and a knight. Okay, that's pretty good, yeah. right? But uh, what I I would say that um, the global effort to beat COVID is um, reasonably better coordinated than, for example, the effort to um, uh, cure pancreatic cancer or something like that, and um, and that's because there's a concerted effort to share data and to collaborate, but it's definitely not as coordinated as it could be. Hmm. Um, but groups like CEPI that's backed by the Gates foundation, you know, they are definitely helping to, um, you know, sort of aggregate all the data and to centralize some funding and to make sure that the the best bishops that are uh, getting the funding, because you know, chess is played with really solid little pieces, right? But I need you to think about chess. Uh, as if it's being played by people that are building each piece and Mm. there's a chance that as you reach for a bishop, it's going to disintegrate as the clinical trial fails. And, oh, I thought I had a bishop there to work with, but I guess I don't. Right. And so you're really playing this game of like probabilistic chess. How, what's your strategy? If maybe you have a bishop on C3, Right. And so uh, a group like SEPI has that perspective. Um, and we put out our COVID map, which if people want to go to our website, RACAP.com, they can click on uh, the COVID link in the menu and they can uh, download this massive PDF with all the different technologies that we were able to find anyway. And the thing is out of date, like within a day of us putting it out because there's new programs being announced. You know, and we're hoping that all these different groups that are, you know, trying to coordinate the global effort will take a look at that map and maybe it'll help them do an even better job. Mm. Right. Now, when it comes to pancreatic cancer, I can understand why companies don't, you know, collaborate like that. They're competing. They want to create the best one or two chess pieces to try to really like knock back pancreatic cancer, you know. And so, you know, they end up collaborating more once their drugs Are FDA approved, and now doctors can start to mix and match the different drugs and figure out how they work together. So eventually you get collaboration. But today with COVID, we're seeing collaboration, uh, you know. At, at an earlier point uh in in development that you'd normally see. Mm.
0: Let's 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 talk about uh dog's diarrhea for a moment. Uh, I don't want to leave that behind because um I want to ask no, you we shouldn't I want, to ask, I want to ask your professional opinion about uh, about something that happened uh, to me while I was living in in New York. Uh it was my partner and I now my husband before we got married, he was uh, he and I thought we would take a little weekend away because we were very stressed out about a new dog that we'd gotten from uh, from the pound. We got a rescue dog. Uh, she was wonderful, but very rambunctious and hard to control. And she wasn't really toilet trained and she wasn't really like trained in any way whatsoever. But we wanted to get out of the city because it had been so difficult in the apartment and and it, it was freezing cold. It was one of those brutal New York winters. And we found a little place up uh, in the up the Hudson River. And it was a bed and breakfast, but one of these. When we get there, it's one of these bed and breakfasts that is uh, basically just an old lady's home, and you're just sleeping in one of her rooms, right? And it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful, beautiful place. But we've got this rambunctious dog with us, and it was a dog friendly place, so she knew the dog was coming. But you feel a little bit awkward about the fact that, like, she's just sleeping across the hallway, (laughs) and there's this dog in your bedroom with you. So anyway, whatever, we're just we're, we're going to roll with this thing anyway. We go on a on a walk out in the freezing cold and there's a large pond that is half frozen over but not but very shallow uh, but also watery and the dog starts playing and frolicking in the, in the water and drinking the water and I'm like, "Should she be drinking that water? It seems like it's kind of muddy." still water i don 't know we don 't have frozen water in Australia. What do I know about the the bugs that might be in a frozen uh, pond or not? So we go back inside and about four or five hours later as the as the sun is is setting, uh, she erupts in explosive diarrhea all over the bedroom of this kindly lady 's cottage and uh for the rest of the night she <laughs> she was basically. Explo- her anus was just exploding on a regular basis every 90 minutes or so. Uh, and we ended up yeah. leaving early, early the next morning with just the most horrendous stains. I mean, I was on hands and knees doing my best to get out of the carpet and out of the rug. But, the I mean, it was almost like we were just walking away from a blazing uh, inferno that we'd left behind us of dog shit. Could that have been that virus? I doubt it because odds are
2: your dog was vaccinated. Against that yes. virus, right? Yeah, okay. we don't really have vaccines against Giardia and the algae and tons of other bacteria. I mean, your your dog could have been drinking a veritable sewer. So yeah, um,
0: yeah, yeah. You know, dogs should dogs should do content. less of that. Dogs should do less of the uh, I, eating you know,
2: shit. It's, I think- I think a dog should social distance from some of that stuff, yeah, definitely.
0: I think that'd be good. Uh, Peter, let's start going through what is cool about viruses, because this is where you first came to my attention, basically listing your 10 favorite uh, things about viruses. And I'd like you to to, to explain them, them to us. You say that your favorite viruses are HIV, rabies, and herpes. There's a pickup line for you.
2: Uh, yeah, I sort of said... They're. Well, you said they're the cleverest. cleverest and, yeah, the, the cleverest, cleverest viruses. Yes. So I'm, I'm going to give them give them that. Explain
0: uh, the ways in which they're cleverest. Let's start with with signal jamming. What does that mean?
2: When a cell uh, gets infected by a virus, and uh, you know, a virus, it, it's uh, basically just a, a bit of code wrapped in a uh, protein and fatty uh, and sugar shell, right? That uh, protects the the genetic code inside. And it can't make copies of itself because it's not really alive. You know, it doesn't have all the machinery needed to ingest some kind of food and nutrients and make copies of itself. What it needs to do is it needs to infect a cell, get in there and hijack all of its production machinery, right, in order to uh, then have the cell make copies of the virus. And then the virus uh, pops out of that cell, maybe killing it in the process and infects new cells. It's not unlike a computer virus, right? Mm. Uh, You remember back when we had... Uh, floppy disks. You know, if you had a computer virus on a floppy disk and you put that floppy disk into your computer, think of that like a virus infecting your computer. Yeah. Now, you know, there's no visual there because viruses just sort of uh, come in over the internet. Well, or um, or a USB,
0: but, a, a USB dongle, a stick, right?
2: Perfect. Which I You're think right. is An how USB the stick. I think that's
0: how the the Americans and the Israelis um, screwed up the Iranian uh, nuclear reactors back in when was yes. that? Like twenty. I want to say 2009 yes. or 2010 or something, they created this piece of software and they had a spy drop a USB dongle somewhere in, near the Iranian nuclear reactor yes, and someone that, picked it up, is, plugged it in, and the whole thing went, went crazy and nobody, the Iranians couldn't figure out why.
2: That's exactly it. You absolutely should not you know, use some random you know, uh, thumb drive that you find yes. somewhere. It was probably dropped by somebody you know, in order to infect your computer and steal all your knowledge. Um, so, uh, and and the same thing with like, you know, condoms, don't do, don't use those if you see them lying around, (laughs) right? Like that, that's how infections spread. So, uh, a virus infects a cell and the cell has a ton of defenses, right? You know, a, a single cell in our body actually doesn't care all that much about its own survival, right? It cares about the survival of the whole the host, you know, the, the person. And so that virus is gonna do so many things to try to stop the infection. It'll certainly try to stop that virus right there and then. Uh, it's, it's got you know, ways of doing that, like cutting up the, the virus uh, genome. Um, it's gonna try to keep that virus from being able to make copies of itself, but it's also gonna send out alert signals to the immune system and to other cells saying, hey, there's an infection going on, which allows surrounding cells to raise their own alarms Uh, their own defenses, right, activate their own booby traps, and brings immune cells over that will detect which cell is infected and destroy it, right? And so uh, what the virus does is says, oh, no, I I know your uh, game plan here. You know, you're going to secrete this little protein called IL-18. You know, well, I've got a protein that attaches to IL-18 and keeps it from, uh, you know, going out and uh, alerting everybody else that I'm in here. Right. So, Hmm. uh, you know, that's an example of signal jamming. Right. And
0: so, uh, yeah, right. And and, and so just to clarify, when a cell in my body receives this protein, it goes, oh, shit, that's a red flag that's been raised by another by one of my buddy cells. And I need to do what to protect myself?
2: Well, you know, uh, a cell will produce all kinds of these signaling molecules to basically, you know, say, hey, send in the uh, cops, the National Guard, you know, send in a priest, whatever, you know, just like everybody come help.
0: <laughs> right. Uh, and- uh, So it's a flare, essentially, it, for to, to it, corral a, the troops. It's a truth.
2: flare. And, and there are multiple different kinds of um, signals that, that the cell will send out, and different viruses are clever enough to have jamming mechanisms for multiple members of these things, right? So- Uh, You know, the fact that we're still here, that we haven't all been murdered by viruses tells you that uh, whatever tricks the viruses have to get around our defenses, we're still pretty good. Like we still have more tricks up our sleeve and eventually we beat the virus. Mm. Right. And so I, I judge a virus's cleverness by how many tricks it's got for beating our defenses But we haven't really come across a a virus that can beat them all, nor, interestingly, does a virus really want to overcome all of our defenses and just kill us. That is no good for the virus. So I'd say the best virus uh, of all would be a virus that um, causes pretty mild infection, can overcome a bunch of our defenses, maybe allows the immune system to corner it to quarantine it in certain cells but has a sort of stalemate there you know um where it doesn't get wiped out basically herpes herpes Hmm. is you know a really great virus it's got tons of tricks up its sleeve and it uh will go dormant in your neurons you know just sits there for years and years and occasionally will erupt and if we're talking hsv1 herpes simplex one Uh, then that's what causes, you know, sores on your your lips. Um, And if it's HSV2, it, you know, causes sores on your junk. So, you know, it's, those are different variants, but they can also pop out at times and uh, cause um, pretty severe pain uh, in parts of your body. We call that shingles. So that's unfortunate. But uh, these are viruses that can spread through contact, skin to skin contact, so kissing or sharing a drink, uh, you know, uh, can um, spread them. And they don't really kill you, mm. right? You know, they don't want to kill you. I mean, uh, the vast majority of people have uh, herpes simplex one and may not even know it.
0: And is the point right? of is I the bet. point of the wart to transmit itself between between people?
2: You know, you're you're most contagious when you've got a sore. You're potentially still contagious, even when you don't have a sore. It's one of those um, sort of myths that, you know, you're totally fine if you don't have a sore. Um, You could still be what's called shedding virus. You know, virus could still be popping off your body um, Hmm. even without a sore at a lower level. So you're less contagious. But, you know, there is some transmission. So it's it's kind of like asymptomatic COVID, right? You know, you could be infected with the virus, you could be spreading it, but you may not be showing symptoms, may not know it the the better a virus actually can spread without showing any symptoms the you know more likely it is to go undetected Shedding right. virus and- is
0: a great word, by the way. I think shedding is—it's so like it's just visually, it's evocative. I just imagine people walking yeah. around like with just shedding little micro particles that- of virus all over the joint.
2: Look, I, I'm going to make make up all kinds of like fun analogies or whatever, but that's actually a technical term.
0: Yeah, no, I know. So, I know. Yeah. <laughs> Whenever I hear doctors talking or epidemiologists talking about like when you might be uh, be, at, be maximally shedding coronavirus, I just it's, it makes my skin crawl as you su- as it's supposed to. So let's. Yeah. So okay, that's great. So we've got the. We've We've got the signal jamming where the the your, your cell sends up a flare to call in the troops, but the the virus sends in an intercept and puts an invisibility cloak over the over the flare so yeah, the, so exactly. the backup doesn't so the cavalry doesn't arrive. Uh, and what yeah. about this this other point about the ability of a cell to basically hide who uh, the ability of a virus that is to hide who it is so that you can't really see what proteins it's made of.
2: What cells will try to do and I, and I use the analogy of like a factory. Uh, that has been infiltrated, you know, and and that the virus is like this um, robot with code, you know, that for how to make more copies of itself. And it breaks into your factory, into the cell, and it wants to use all the machinery in there to make more copies of itself. And then it's going to pop out of that factory and leave it in rubble and go on and infect more factories, right? So first order of business, you get in there, the factories, uh, you know, alarms, uh, are about to go off to alert, you know, the world, Hey, I've been infiltrated and the virus cuts the wire and make sure that the factory stays silent. But, uh, you know, these factories ourselves are smart and what they'll do is they constantly put, uh, pieces of whatever's being made inside of them on display right there at the window so that anybody walking by can see, Oh, look, there's a bit of this protein being made and that protein being made. Um, and it, uh, our immune cells are constantly going by all of our cells and kind of feeling around for are all the things that are being uh, made in this factory part of us? Are they self, right? Hmm. Or is it something weird, non-self that I haven't seen before? If it's non-self, then let's kill it. Let's destroy it. Let's burn the factory to the ground, right? And so um, these this is part of our... Uh, cell-based immune defenses rather than antibodies. And we can talk about antibodies later. Um, well, uh, in order to put things on display, there's kind of like a pedestal protein. It's called MHC, major, major histocompatibility complex. Um, but you just need to uh, think of it as MHC. And uh, what the virus, some viruses will do is they will basically prevent the production of the pedestal or prevent it from getting to the window, right? And so nothing in that factory can be displayed in the window. So anybody walking by cannot see that there are bits of virus protein being made in that factory. Wow. Now, our immune system is still clever and knows that, you know, there are some viruses that will do that. In fact, not just viruses, but cancers will do that too. Right. The, I, the thread I haven't written, but, you know, someday when I find some time, I'll, uh, you know, show you the analogies um, of sort of similarities between the tricks that viruses use and the tricks that cancer cells use hmm. in order to you know, survive in our bodies. Because our immune systems are constantly trying to kill off uh, any cells that turn cancerous. Um, and so what uh, what our immune system has figured out is that if I don't see pedestals in the window of a factory, I know something's up. It's either a cancer cell that doesn't want me to know that it's uh, making all kinds of cancer-favorable proteins uh, in there, or it's a virus-infected cell, and I don't care, you know, I'm gonna kill it. And the cells that do that, they're called natural killer cells, right? And it's one of the coolest cell types. I always think of is that a natural t-
0: is that a technical term like like shading. It is it's, a natural it, it, killer it, cell.
2: It, it, it's a natural killer cell. It's an <laughs> NK cell, right? This is the Woody Super Woody Harrelson cool. uh, natural Woody Harrelson. born killers poster. That, that's right. Yeah, but you know, as I point out, these are actually good cells that are constantly looking to kill only bad cells, right? So it's like if Woody Harrelson played Dexter, right? So. <laughs> Uh, You know, these cells are going around and if they see that a cell does not have pedestals on display, then they destroy it. And so there are some viruses uh, that will make a fake pedestal
0: of their own, right? And put it in the display. (laughs) So you know, <laughs> this is like tricked. it's like counter espionage. Uh, so it hang on, is. let me let me let me just get my head around this. So the in in a normal cell, you can see what's going on because the immune system can walk by and it can see it can just check that everything is is okay. But in order for it to to see that, all of the things need to be displayed on these little pedestals called MHC, and then the virus can essentially remove those pedestals can it so that the so that there's nothing to see in the window but then your immune system goes aha because there's nothing to see something fishy's going on but then some viruses like herpes can go actually i'm going to manufacture my own fake rinky dink pedestal and just put it in the window so that the immune system will walk on by thinking that everything's kosher
2: that is it. That's it. You you get a PhD from Harvard. In Amazing. Now. That's
0: great. That was a lot yeah. easier than I thought that a PhD from Harvard would be. That's excellent.
2: Yeah, it's actually not that hard. It's a, it's a myth that you got to do <laughs> any real real work.
0: So let's talk about HIV. What is what makes HIV special?
2: HIV um, infects our immune cells. So uh, in the thread, I describe it as a cop killer, right? Our immune system is designed to catch viruses that infect sort of other cells, right? You know, you kind of assume that uh, the immune system itself is not going to come under attack, but HIV attacks the very cells that are coming after it, right? So imagine a, a cop is coming for this, uh, this, you know, killer robot, and the robot's like, oh, so good to see you, and comes right at the cop and then takes over his body and, hmm. you know, destroys, destroys it while making copies of itself. So it's uh, a, a brilliant tactic The more the immune system revs up and launches, you know, uh, T cells, you know, the the type of immune cells that the HIV likes to infect uh, at the virus, the more the virus says, oh, this is great. No, please. More more. You know, keep keep sending. I I can't get enough. Right. And so um, our bodies don't really have a defense Hmm. against HIV. But there are some people, by the way, and and.
0: it sounds like jujitsu where you use the, the, uh, like the force yes. of your opponent and then you swing them around and, and it's actually their yes, attack that's, that, that benefits you. That's,
2: yeah, I mean, it, it very much is like that. And um, there are some people who can uh, basically um, not get infected with HIV no matter how much HIV they're exposed to, hmm. right? And uh, they have a mutation, Uh, they have a mutation in a protein called CCR5, uh, and CCR5, and I, and I, I talk about this in COVID, you know, um, I talk about how the robot, you know, the, the criminal clone robot that infects your body, it, uh, will reach out and it has to grab a doorknob on every cell in order to get in. And that doorknob, if people have been reading about SARS, uh, SARS SARS-2 is a protein called ACE2. Mm. Right. That's the protein on the surface of uh, our cells that the virus attaches to and uses to get into cells. And we've got ACE2 expressed in our lung cells, in our throat cells, in our nose cells. And that's uh, one of the reasons why the virus likes to replicate in those kinds of tissues. Right. Well, in HIV's case, the doorknob that it reaches out and grabs and turns in order to get into cells is called CCR5. Well, there are some people that have a mutation in CCR5. So that it basically they don't they don't put CCR5 doorknobs on their T cells, and it's not that big a deal uh, to not have CCR5. They're normal people. Um, you know, we can't seem to see any kind of real problem. It seems to tamp down their immune system a little bit. So you might think of it as a slightly weaker immune system, but not in any way that's harmful. And uh, it probably keeps the immune system from overreacting to stuff, if if anything. Hmm. And uh, and those people basically, you know, well, frankly, can have unprotected sex with HIV positive people and not worry about getting HIV. Not something I would recommend
0: Amazing. because
2: there's still herpes. Right. (laughs) Right. So, you know, lots of other reasons to. Well, I mean, this is this is yeah,
0: this is part of the problem that a lot of health experts have with the rise of of PrEP and these things that that um, people can take now to essentially make it impossible. Well, not impossible, almost impossible for them to catch HIV because there are these increases in gonorrhea and syphilis and all these other diseases now that young gay guys can pop a pill and, and go and have sex with impunity.
2: Yes, and thankfully there are antibiotics for those, but not for herpes.
0: Yeah. Um, well, right. We yeah, are starting yeah. to see
2: some antibiotic-resistant strains of of uh, gonorrhea, for example. Yeah. Like you you don't want to get that. If no. you go back in the history books and you read about what like advanced gonorrhea and syphilis are, like. Those are oh, gruesome. syphilis
0: is absolutely horrendous. I had no idea. I mean, thank God we've got, thank God for antibiotics because you look yeah. at some of the images of the, some of the drawings of people who had syphilis in like the 19th century and it's just like half of their face has fallen off.
2: You have a really interesting audience if they really dig listening to this while drinking their
0: coffee. Uh, we should do, we should talk more often. <laughs> they could, be, mean, drinking really they could be drinking vodka. They uh, could be drinking vodka. So yeah. so if if CCR five this gene gives you a, essentially makes it impossible for you to get HIV. Would there be an alternative um, therapy that would be a gene therapy possibly to give to yes. tweak with people's and, DNA but, and give them that gene? Yes,
2: but but, but first, let me tell you why it is that there are even as many people uh, uh, as there are that have this mutation, because it's actually rare. I I shouldn't say that it's common, but it's more common than it should be if it's really a mutation that sort of does nothing good, nothing bad. Like it's it's clearly been enriched. Something historically has happened that has caused people who had that mutation to be more likely to survive. Right. And one of the coolest theories that I uh, read about this as to why is that during the um, uh, Black Death, right? What is that in the 1400s or mm-hmm. something like that? This this bacteria, Yersinia pestis, swept through Europe and it was just carnage, right? I I, I don't know what fraction, like, uh, you know, some huge fraction. It was like percentage.
0: a It was like it was like a third or something. It was something insane. Yeah, the, the it people was, who it was died. was crazy, right? Yeah.
2: And the theory is that people who had that mutation, you know, the the very slim number, they were much more likely to survive. And so they became a larger fraction of the people who survived the Black Death, hmm. right, uh, and uh, the plague. And so now, centuries later, HIV comes along and they are protected against uh, HIV infection. So it's just such a cool thing to see, you know, these... Uh, can connections you know between
0: horrors uh, across the centuries so yeah <laughs> sounds we, like a good gene um, i want that gene i want a ccr5 um, can you give me a ccr5 yeah, can you hit a can you hit a brother up so, uh
2: well you want me to destroy your ccr5 you want me to take it out oh is so, that the one yes. so
0: i don't want to have it yeah yeah you don't want to have okay got it yeah so, take it out
2: um so there's uh so one company actually developed a drug to inhibit ccr5 it's not a very good drug um doesn't work all that well not used much. used um, and, uh, and it's OK, because we've got other really great drugs for, for managing HIV at this point. But, you know, there is a push to try to cure HIV. Um, and there's been one case and I can't remember if I heard about a second one. But in any case, the first person ever to be cured of HIV, uh, it, this man is uh, called a Berlin patient. Um, and he had a, uh, a cancer. He was HIV positive and he had a uh, leukemia. I think, or a lymphoma or something, and he needed a transplant. And the doctors decided they were going to find a donor that had the CCR5 mutation, right? And so uh, when they um, destroyed uh, this patient's immune system, completely wiped it out, killed all the T cells, all the bone marrow stem cells, just wiped out his bone marrow, which is what you need to do to treat, you know, a leukemia like that. And then they gave him back the immune system of one of these CCR5 mutant, uh, you know, donors, then whatever little HIV there might have been in his body after the procedure had no cells to replicate in,
1: mm. and it
2: just vanished, and that person was cured. Now it was hell for him, mm. right? And uh, it's not. I don't want to do you, that.
0: I don't want you to do that no. to me. I mean,
2: Look, anybody who is HIV positive, you know, has been um, basically restored to near normal health by, you know, uh, cocktails of modern drugs. They inhibit uh, multiple points of uh, the virus's machinery. Uh, and basically, um, you know, you have to take a pill every day. But other than that, you can live a normal life. Right. No, it is a terrible idea to put yourself through what's called chemoablation—you know, wiping out your bone marrow, which has a pretty high chance of killing you—in mm. order to consider yourself, if you don't die, cured of HIV. Okay, so and Peter, so what,
0: earlier what is, a few moments ago, I said, "Can you uh, can you get rid of my CCR5?" I would like to retract that request. No,
2: no, no, don't don't retract it. Okay, just, not yet.
0: Just All right, okay. Because there are the there are some
2: biotechnology companies, including one that I. I had invested in years ago and has subsequently been, been acquired, and I doubt their technology is going to succeed, you know, probably has failed by now. But uh, there are still others that will probably pick this up and, and exper- experiment with it over time. What they do is they take your own immune cells out, uh, if you're HIV positive, and they uh, will gene edit, you know, the CCR5. They will use, whether it's CRISPR or something else, they will change the CCR5, or they'll put in some sort of a blocking agent uh, in there. And while they're at it, they might, uh, you know, put in something that um, eliminates uh, the other doorknob that the virus uh, grabs onto, CD4. And uh, they will, well, actually, no, I don't think they would really do that. I can't remember now. Uh, In any case, (laughs) uh, they they will basically make those cells like the uh, mutant, you know, HIV impervious cells, and then they'll put them back into you. Now, the thing is, is uh, when they do that, uh, it doesn't require wiping out your bone marrow, uh, you know, completely. It gives you at least a portion of your immune system that is uh, impervious to HIV. And so it may not matter as much after that whether the HIV is still replicating in other of your non-modified immune cells, because you will always have these Kevlar-protected cops that can both attack the hiv oh that's right uh the company actually armed those kevlar cops with you know basically um uh, a targeting mechanism to go after hiv infected cells Hmm. so you know the hope is that they'll wipe out any hiv infected cells but in any case they are kevlar protected against hiv and they are able to also protect you against all the other infections that are out there and how do i get these kevlar protected cops well, enroll in a clinical study uh, and cross your fingers. Um, so, and, then, and, and this would know, be
0: by tweaking my my DNA?
2: Tweaking your bone marrow cells' DNA, yes. It's done outside your body. Your, the cells are taken out of you. Right. They're modified in the laboratory, and then they're put back into you. So I and think it doesn't I, involve using I, I, nearly... I think, you're ju- I think
0: you're just starting to, to, to point to something that I don't really understand about CRISPR and this sort of stuff. And you might want to give the listener a, a brief rundown of what, what CRISPR is. But yeah, my, sure. my confusion around it is if – I mean if my DNA is in every cell in my body, how are you, how are you like tweaking my – how are you taking my DNA out and altering it and then putting it back in in a way that is significant yeah. enough to have an impact on my entire body?
2: Yeah. Well, so the in, in this case, and you're absolutely right, by the way, there are some diseases where you have to modify the DNA in a whole lot of the cells in your body. And we have no mechanism for getting, you know, these smart scissors. You should, that's what you can think of CRISPR as smart scissors to go into every cell and modify them in just the right way. So well, that is still way far out. But as it happens, we really just need to modify your immune system in the case of HIV, right? And that means we just need to take your bone marrow out. And so you'll go in there, you two, do The word bone just is doing a seen.
0: lot of li- heavy lifting in that sentence. Okay, we just need to take that's, your bone that's marrow. True. That's all we need to it, do. Just take your bone marrow out uh, of no, your bone.
2: Uh, it's painful. Um, uh, that's true. They sedate you. Uh, you know, so that helps. Um, might give you a drink. I don't know. <laughs> and, uh, I'd wanna and, and I'd want to be out. I'd want to be out. And they, and they take a, a thick needle and they go into a, a big bone and they punch through it and they extract the bone marrow. Um, next time, you know, you eat some fried chicken, crack open a bone, and look at what's in there. You know, when that chicken was alive, there's, you know, immune cells, uh, stem cells that were making all kinds of stuff. Uh, That's you know, what makes the bone marrow
0: so delicious, Peter.
2: Yes, I don't. I, I'm pretty sure the doctors don't eat the patient's bone marrow. I would. Um, I would hope
0: not. I'm not saying mine would be delicious, but uh, you know, you go to a fancy farm-to-table, nose-to-tail restaurant. They bring out a big piece of uh, bone oh. marrow. The bones all. Uh, there'd be some some salt. I,
2: I thought. I thought you might be getting all... You kind of are getting Hannibal Lecter on me here. So um, I like it. Um, but uh, so the doctors, you know, they reach in there, they, they extract some of the bone marrow cells out. And uh, then in the laboratory, they um, uh, have a number of tricks for how to get the CRISPR uh, protein or gene into the cells. So all of that modification of the DNA is actually happening inside the cells, hmm. right? And one of the methods, for example, is you electrocute this, the the uh, cells and it causes their, um, their membranes to open up and allow stuff to come in. It really is, you know, various forms of torture, Mm. but, uh, you know, once you modify the DNA in those cells, you take a sample of some of them, you check, you sequence the DNA, you make sure you got the changes that you want. And then the other cells you can put back in the patient. And, uh, you know, the cells, you can just infuse them into the patient's blood and the cells will naturally say, oh, I so want to go home and they will, uh, migrate back into the bone marrow.
0: Wow. Really?
2: Yeah. You can inject uh, it. You
0: can inject bone marrow cells in a needle into my bloodstream and they'll make their way into my bone.
2: Basically. Yeah. These are, these are, uh, uh, stem cells and yeah. they will traffic their way back into the bone marrow now it helps to use some chemotherapy to kill off some of the uh, cells that are in your bone marrow to make room so right. uh, you kill them off, and then the bone marrow is kind of like i 'm feeling rather hollow and empty here. I would love some stem cells to come and and you know uh, occupy my spaces, and so if that's the point where you've infused the stem cells, they will happily go in there and take up residence right so uh, these are all cool tricks that we have learned. Over time, like I said, it's it's uh, like a bunnings, right? Mm. You know, there's so many tricks, so many tools that we can use to tackle so many diseases, and we're using these now. I mean, I just described a process that maybe someday, possibly, might uh, you know allow us to cure HIV, but it actually is curing genetic disorders that kids have. You know, there's some uh, kids with uh, sickle cell anemia um, that have been functionally cured with a process like this. And, uh, in fact, in those cases, there's a company that, uh, has taken, um, HIV itself, the HIV virus and gutted it, you know, completely, uh, appropriated its genetic material and stuck the gene in for, to, um, that kids with sickle cell anemia, uh, they have a bad copy of this, uh, hemoglobin gene and they stick a good copy of it into this, um, HIV that we've, I, I, one of my tweets, I call it domesticated. We've tamed this <laughs> HIV, mm. and you use that HIV to infect the uh, the kid's uh, bone marrow cells, wow. and uh, then you stick the bone marrow in. So we have basically flipped HIV, you know, to be um, an agent on our behalf. So you, you rip know, out uh, the bad, you rip kid out kid.
0: the bad components of the HIV virus, and you insert something that is going to cure sickle cell anemia, and then you put it back in them. And what role at that point is the HIV shell playing? What's it doing for us?
2: Well, the the shell that it's in, you know, um, it just is the delivery mechanism. It's like the disk drive. Right. right? It, it, the, the, and the is, HIV,
0: is, is HIV uniquely uh, um, efficient at that?
2: No, no. uh anytime you hear gene therapy or viral vector, uh, those are terms that describe... Um, our The way that we've used viruses now as delivery mechanisms for the code that we want
0: to put into right. people. So it, it didn't have to be HIV. Disease. That's just an example. It could have been any no, virus.
2: No, there, there's there's um, adeno-associated virus, AAV, uh, and that uh, was recently approved for the treatment of uh, kids with spinal muscular atrophy. Now, that virus you can just inject into babies and it uh, will restore a, um, a a missing protein in their um, spinal column, and you know, wow. uh, basically allow them to grow and and um, and walk. I mean, it just restores and your muscle. So just function, to clarify it, for people, in
0: function. case in case people are a bit confused about the difference between the treatments that we're talking about, you're, what you're, what we're talking about here is basically CRISPR, correct? All of these are some some variant no, of that, no, or no,
2: no, um, no, CRISPR. It, it, it's like a brand of scissors. Yeah. Right. You know, everyone's just talking about that brand of scissors. There are other types of scissors that that we've used zinc finger nucleases and mega nucleases. And uh, it. You know, those of us on the inside of the field have long known about you know all these different kinds of scissors, but for some reason, the CRISPR brand became the most famous. It's a great name, right? It's a great name. It, it's it like is, the it is, it's it like is. that
0: movie about about the founding of McDonald's. And at the very end, they're like the only reason we we wanted the it's a quite a good movie that's called The Founder. And he's like the only reason why I wanted the rights to McDonald's was because it's a great name. Like it's a McDonald's sounds sounds good. CRISPR, CRISPR. You're right. I know exactly right. what CRISPR you know, does. And- so hang on, but oh, the, oh. so let me just but just so that people don't get lost. If you we're all, we're all we're all made up essentially of our genome, right? I am me genetically because of my genome. It's like a big book. It's a book of letters that are, that are the code that instruct yeah, my it's body the, it's the instruction, to be what my body an is. And what we're talking heart. about, what I'm calling what I'm incorrectly calling CRISPR because I'm an idiot but you can uh, you can correct me on it, is a is the ability to Quite precisely, go to page 347 of the book, line 14, and just cut out a little bit that's not doing me any good and insert, if we want to, another bit that is going to be better for me. Is that basically it?
2: Yes, that is what uh, people uh, try to use CRISPR for. They also use another brand of scissors called zinc finger nucleases uh, to do the same thing but that's not a catchy name. So nobody knows about
0: that. (laughs) I'm sticking with CRISPR.
2: It's called gene editing, right? What you're describing is called gene editing. Uh, and there's other ways of doing gene editing. Um, and one of the problems with CRISPR is that it involves a foreign protein. Like it's not, uh, CRISPR itself is not a human protein. It's a foreign protein, uh, that you'll find in, in like bacteria. Right. And so when, remember how I told you, like, Immune cells go around and they look in the windows of all of our factories, yeah. all of our cells, look for little bits of stuff uh, that's uh, being made in there. Well, if you use CRISPR in the human body to get stuff into cells and there's still some of that CRISPR protein in those cells, then the immune system is going to see it. There's a foreign protein in those cells right. and going to think, huh, maybe I should kill this one. So, It still remains you know a problem for us to solve how do you use CRISPR in the human body we do use CRISPR when we take out bone marrow uh, cells and we want to modify them right and we you know basically performing like open-heart surgery on these cells and you can do whatever you want because later when you put those cells in there they're not gonna have the CRISPR in them so that's fine but actually injecting CRISPR proteins uh, into people that's still you know Uh, sort of Buck Rogers plus Battlestar Galactica piled on top of each other in terms of risk.
0: Right. So let's just talk about gene editing more broadly then. Is it going to save us all?
2: No. I mean, save us all from what? Everything?
0: It's it's like... What, everything. Because like the people who it, are boosters of no. it are like, this is your game changer. This is we're just gonna be able no, to we're just gonna no. take out your cells, we're gonna do a little editing, a little bit of uh, you, like you, we'll, we'll do some magic dragged, and we'll put it back in you and then you'll be a superhuman.
2: You, you've dragged me halfway down aisle twelve in Bunnings and said, That thing, is that gonna fix everything in our in our house? Is that the only thing we need? Hmm. No. It's really I've asked well them for that at Bunnings and
0: they're like, We don't have a magic we don't have a magic device that will solve all your yeah, problems, sir. Yeah, Get out of not. here. Why are you wearing an upturned ice cream container on your head?
2: Yeah, yeah. There's a tinfoil hat over there. So, <laughs> you know, it's a useful tool for certain things and it will have its role, right? But there's so many other cool things we can do. You know, we do not need to edit You know, our genome and in order to pass it to like fix the problems that our kids are going to have. We don't have to edit our sperm and our eggs, you know, and create, you know, these genetically engineered babies in order to solve diseases. Like today, if two people uh, want to have kids and it turns out that they they both have the mutation for cystic fibrosis, they themselves are happy. uh, I'm sorry, healthy, hopefully also happy. Um, because, you know, you just need one good copy of your cystic, uh, what's called your CFTR gene. Uh, you need one good copy. And if you have a bad one, it's okay. The trouble is when two people that each carry one bad copy get together, there's a one in four chance that their child will inherit the bad copy from Mm. each of them. Right. Well, we have technology now that's widely available, uh, where you go to an IVF clinic. You do in vitro fertilization to create a bunch of embryos from the mother and the father. And then they can basically do a genetic test on the embryos to see which ones have uh, one or two good copies of the CFTR gene and implant only those embryos. And then the child that you have has basically sidestepped cystic fibrosis.
0: But that's not that's not fixing the problem. That's just killing the, the embryos that are bad.
2: Well, no that that's fixing the problem. If the child you have has only two has two good copies of the CFTR gene, that's it. There is no more cystic fibrosis. No, no, I understand.
0: Your... Yeah, I, no, I understand that. But it's, assume you only get to produce one viable embryo out of that, and it has cystic fibrosis. You're not talking about a mechanism by which you can cure it. You're just saying, well, if you no, had several no, and one of them didn't, then you would just pick the ones that don't so... have it.
2: So what I I would tell you is uh, go through another round of IVF and make another embryo, Yeah. right? I mean, it's a pretty edgy case there, you know, to say, yes, but what if they only make one and it has, all right, fine, then you have to make a choice. Are you going to, you know, give birth to a child with
0: cystic fibrosis? No, 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 I'm not. I mean, I'm not saying it's not useful. I'm not saying it's not useful. I'm just saying it's not really medicine, right? I mean, we're talking about using gene editing. No, 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 hang on. If the embryo, Peter, if the embryo, Think of the embryo as a tiny little person and you've got – so you're saying if you've got a bunch of them, then you can use pre-implantation genetic diagnosis to figure out which ones are bad and which ones are good genetically and then you can discard the the bad ones. That's different from taking the tiny little person and fixing that tiny little person.
2: You know, um, that is different but what I'm saying is uh, if the tools you use to fix – You know, oh, well, let's genetically engineer that embryo, you know, involve taking a pair of scissors to that tiny little embryo's genome and, you know, for all you know, are making lots of little nips and cuts throughout the rest of the genome. And while maybe you cure the cystic fibrosis, you have no idea what else you did and might have condemned that kid, you know, to, you know, cancer when he turns 12. I don't think that that's a great risk to take. Mm. Right. And so that's the problem with these technologies. You know, we're still five year olds with a pair of blunt scissors, you know, going at this and the public is saying, Oh, we'll just gene edit every problem in our genome out. You know, um, look, there's an analogous, uh, controversy with, uh, genetically engineered foods, genetically modified foods, right. Um, where people say, Oh my God, you're creating like Franken foods. Right. And it's like, you understand for thousands of years, farmers have been taking their best kernels of corn and you know uh, planting those and then looking for the traits they wanted and then planting those and then hybridizing plants and mixing you know various uh, you know strains of a given plant in order to try to get the best traits so it's akin to the difference between using diagnostic tests to you know select embryo that doesn't have a disease right so it's less fancy I get it but it's still, uh, uh, you know, messing with nature to try to get a better outcome, mm. right? And sidestepping a disease right now using those techniques is way better. Than trying to go in there and say, well, show me the most cutting edge shelf in Bunnings, and I'm going to try like all these cutting edge technologies on my embryo.
0: I want cutting edge, Peter. No, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I take your point. I'm just trying to keep the category, I'm not trying not to make a category error in our conversations about what is, uh, what is medicine, what is gene editing, and what is sort of just public policy like there are uh, yeah. you know denmark claim i think it's denmark claims to have basically eradicated down syndrome this is another analogous no, controversy right but that's that, be-
2: you can't eradicate down syndrome because down syndrome is something that happens by chance like yeah but, what they, but what, they, what they what they
0: what they mean is that they basically have a policy where if if where they they test all all women and if the if the baby has down syndrome then they abort it and they try again that's not it's, it's that
2: so is not a sure. medical it, it's a woman's choice. It is It is medical, man. Like I, I don't a, know what to tell you. It's like, not
0: a medical triumph to say that you, that we vanquish Down syndrome just because we kill all the tiny babies who have Down syndrome.
2: I, I'm going to guess that maybe you and I might be on opposite sides of some sort of divide out there. That maybe we ought to back off and
0: explore something else. Really? It, should we talk about dog diarrhea i you know uh, (laughs) i mean that's cool i I mean i'm pro-choice i'm I'm just i'm just going on the edgy like ethics angle here which is that there's a there's a a difference between fixing something and just noticing that it's there and so flushing it down the toilet
2: so so just to be clear uh there you're saying there's a difference between fixing something and preventing something and i think that that is not a significant distinction so Hmm. the end result is a healthy child if that's your goal, there's multiple ways of doing it. One of them involves setting five-year-olds with scissors on your future kid's DNA. And the other one just involves sidestepping the the problem entirely with a simple test. Mm. So I'm just saying that if you think out of the box a little bit and don't just be like, no, I need a CRISPR solution. It's got to be CRISPR or nothing, you know? Uh, and just say, look, I want a healthy child. Then you'll discover that we have long had, well, long, I mean, you know, like a decade, mm. you know, maybe 15 years, we've had a solution that we could use. But it's not yet uh, public policy to think that way. You know, IVF still remains the kind of thing that most people have to pay out of pocket for. Mm. Right. But if they have a child with cystic fibrosis, well, there's a three hundred dollars or $200,000 drug now that Vertex has created. That's an absolute miracle drug. And what's actually really amazing about our industry is Vertex's drug is going to be generic within like you know, 15 years, that's going to be a cheap generic pill that you'll be able to get. Wow. And it won't be one of these things where the world's up in arms about the cost of the drug. The same way there was once an outcry about how much statins cost. Oh my God, Lipitor is so expensive. Nobody talks about how much statins cost (laughs) because (laughs) they're all generic drugs. Yeah. And drugs are the only part of healthcare that go generic. The only one. It's basically, think of it as homes where we are paying off the mortgage and then we own them. As a society, we've now paid off the mortgage on all those Staten houses and we own them. And what that's done is allowed us to get out from underpaying rent to hospitals that previously were treating a whole lot more people that were showing up with heart attacks. Mm. You know, those HIV drugs, they haven't yet gone generic, but in time they will. But if we hadn't invented those HIV drugs, you would have massive healthcare facilities that are just tending to HIV positive people that are constantly fighting off, you know, progressing to AIDS. How long does right? it take a drug to go,
0: to go generic, Peter?
2: Typically 10 to 15 years.
1: Hmm.
0: And
2: I, I would say that the, uh, an emerging problem with our industry is that um, it has started to make drugs where we actually don't know how to copy them. And the process of a drug going generic conventionally involves the patent expiring and then 20 other companies are free to now make a copy of that drug and they compete on price and the price crashes down to close to the cost of production. Right. So just good old school uh, competition. Mm. Uh, The trouble is that while you can do that with a good cocktail, right, there's a recipe and, you know, good bartenders can figure out how to make a really high quality martini, you know, and it's, In theory, the same use the same ingredients, you know, uh, and you shouldn't be able to tell the difference. We're making drugs now that are called biologics. They're made in cells, They're proteins, uh, antibodies, things like that, that are more like wine. Hmm. And uh, it's really hard, arguably impossible to copy a wine. You can throw a label on there. And you know, I, for example, would not be able to tell the difference between two (laughs) very similar wines. I'm not Hmm. that good, but there are people who can right? And it's just, it's much more of an art how you do it. And so the FDA and and, uh, the EMA, you know, these regulatory agencies, what they really look at is not the composition of the biologic drug itself, but they study the process by which it's made. And even the same company, when it makes a drug, you know, Amgen or AbbVie or some of these companies, when they make a biologic drug, It's not always identical from batch to batch to batch. Hmm. So there's some variability just in the the expert company's production, right? And so when some other company is like, well, I'm just going to read your patent now that it's expired, and I'm just going to copy this process, you know, it would be like going on a, I don't know, on a a wine tour and drinking a bottle of wine and being like, I think I can wing it and reproduce your wine. You probably can't, right? And so um, one of the problems that's emerging is that we don't really have – a process for genericizing biologic drugs. Hmm. There's such a thing as biosimilars. They're almost like it. It's like, oh, well, I also got a Merlot. It's pretty close. But it's not the same. And sometimes the difference can matter a lot.
0: Does that mean There's that the best, a, job, the, the best drugs coming down the pike are going to remain expensive?
2: Exactly. Is that really what it means? And that's what I wrote my book about. And what I said is the there has been a kind of unstated biotech social contract right uh that historically whether we knew it or not we were subscribed to it we were you know we had signed on to it It, this contract what it basically says is the industry will make drugs that will go generic without undue delay right you collect your mortgage you know you you collect your reward Hmm. and then it ends and you'd better build something new if you want to collect a new mortgage stream you don't just sit back and collect rent so we will make drugs and collect our reward for a finite period of time, then they become generic and the world owns them. They're a public good. And in exchange, society is gonna make uh, all the appropriate drugs that a patient is prescribed by their physician affordable and accessible to the patient through proper insurance, which means low out-of-pocket costs. Everybody has to have insurance and that insurance plan has to have low out-of-pocket costs. And that contract has been unraveling on Mm. both sides. Especially in America. I think in Australia, you guys have a pretty decent healthcare system. Yeah, we have Medicare, America, Medicare for everyone. Yeah. And so, you know, um, in America, we have uh, a fantastic healthcare system for the like 80 percent of people who have good insurance and have jobs and can afford their out of pocket costs. And then it's absolutely abysmal. It's like third world for those people that are uninsured or, you know, have very poor insurance. And they can't afford anything in healthcare. They I mean, and even I would just folks. qualify
0: even that by saying that the 80% of a very good care is not very good value care. I mean, it's good at, at the point of use, uh, but it's incredibly expensive.
2: Here's the thing um, you know, uh, it's more complicated than that. And I would urge you to read my book, uh, you know, to, to learn more. It's a whole, it's a whole separate interview uh, if you want to have it. Yep. Uh, I might still be able to make it funny. <laughs> um, it is a little bit more serious. Yeah, it's it's more serious than COVID, if you can believe. So,
0: <laughs> wow, you know, that's a heavy book. Yeah,
2: I know. That's saying something. But basically, insurance plans have been increasingly reneging on their uh, promise. You know, you sign up when you're healthy, you pay the premiums, and then when you actually get sick, they're like, "Oh, but actually, first you got to pay like six thousand dollars out of pocket." It's like, "But I can't afford that." It's like, "Well, you know, sorry." Mm. And I guess you can't get the drug. Now, instead of, in America, people realizing that their insurance plans have basically conned them and that they're not insured, they say, well, why can't I afford this drug? It's so expensive. Look, it only takes pennies to make that pill. And it, you know it's like, well, wait a second. like No, it costs mm. billions of dollars to invent this. Yeah. I mean, it, which, as, the, as they like, say, the,
0: the, the, second, yeah. the second pill costs a penny. The first pill costs... A hundred million dollars.
2: Well, like two point five billion dollars or more, wow. right? Like to, to invent. This is an expensive business. Yeah. And so um, you know, you have to pay off that jackpot. It would be as if you looked at the lottery and it's like, I don't know why we have to pay a hundred million, you know, dollars to the winner here. I mean, he paid a dollar for the ticket. If we gave him like five bucks, that's pretty good. That's like five times more than he paid. Well, obviously, if you control, price control that lottery winnings down to five bucks, nobody would play the lottery. And it's yeah. like, but I don't understand. I'm offering to you; you'll make four dollars a profit, you know. And that's basically the problem: The politicians, the, you know, reporters, members of the public, they don't get that. Yet they play the lottery and they understand that they need a hundred million dollar jackpot to entice them to do it, right? And so, uh, we we yeah, I mean, we don't need to get tech-
0: sidetracked by the by the costliness yeah. of the U.S. healthcare system. But I think pe- even no. people people like me who think that it's it's got major problems in, in terms of how it prices itself would concede that you want drug companies to make shitloads of money when they come up with a really, a really good drug,
2: especially if it's going to go generic, because what you're doing is you're basically commissioning the creation of a of a house, something that's going to give us security. Uh, I would actually describe it more as a fire department. You know, a town needs a fire department. It's uh, random homes are burning down. So they get together and like, let's build a fire department. It's going to cost a boatload. But you know what you don't want to do is say, well, when somebody's house catches fire, we're going to charge them a fat copay, and mm. you know maybe eight out of ten of them are going to be able to afford the copay, but two out of ten won't, and we'll just stand by and let their house burn down. That's well, basically the American healthcare system. Yeah, I mean, also and we publicly fund
0: some... fire departments, so I mean that would be a, the analogy there would be to to public funding for a lot more public funding for research and development.
2: Well, no, because you are uh, even when insurance pays for drugs, the premiums, like it all comes out of our pockets. Whether you call it taxes or you call it insurance premiums, it's all money aggregated from society. So I wouldn't make that distinction. We simply need to make sure that insurance functions as insurance, which you guys are lucky in Australia does, in the US, not so much. I mean, we had people uh, who thought they had COVID going in, following the CDC's orders and going in for testing as they were supposed to. And then they got hit with massive bills. Like Mm. that's gonna dissuade people from going in to get testing. And, you know, there's no drug company to hate in there in that situation. Mm. That's just going and getting a, you know, a simple test. Right. It's a hospital bills. And so what happened? Governors of various states and the federal government were like, that's outrageous. And insurance plans quickly changed. They patched up their holes. They covered it. And then we had all these people who have no insurance and they needed to go in. They had had, serious COVID and they they would come out of uh, the hospitals with massive bills that would basically bankrupt them. And the federal government stepped up and said, oh, we will pay for all of the medical bills, you know, of the uninsured. Really, it took COVID for you to do that. But when Mm. somebody's got cancer or Parkinson's or whatever, no, you just turn a blind eye. Mm. Right. You let families go bankrupt. Right. So what's right for COVID is right for the future of American healthcare, global healthcare. But the thing is, on the other side, you know, drugs uh, have to be appropriately valued, right? Well, look at what COVID has cost just America. I think it's like trillions of dollars mm. globally, it's, mm. you know, tens of trillions of dollars. You know, if you were to basically say, we will pay a trillion dollars to whoever cures uh, COVID, that yeah. would be like five times more than what all the branded drugs in America cost each year mm. right it would be Absurd, and yet it would be a bargain. I mean, right? it, the the, is-
0: COVID must have it must have cost hundreds of trillions of dollars, really, because I mean, even just the U.S. government alone has already put a two trillion dollar stimulus in. And what's the value of the U.S. economy? And if you added up the stimulus packages of all of the all of Western European countries, plus Australia, plus Canada, New Zealand, et cetera, oh, then yeah. and then the the economic devastation. I mean, it would it's what just it's unimaginable. Yeah.
2: You're going to have a generation of kids where you will be able to track their educational deficit. Right. Mm. You know, the the lucky few that had parents that had the time to be able to sit down and actually homeschool them. Great. They'll have an advantage. But everybody else is lost a year. Right. And whatever psychological damage like the cost, we've only begun to calculate that. Right. And, you know, when health economists, which, by the way, if you could see me now, I'm doing air quotes because they're I don't actually (laughs) think they're real economists, you know, When they do their math, do they uh, take into account how reassured all of us would be if we knew that there were a drug or a vaccine for COVID, right? Even if none of us were to get COVID, just knowing there's a drug that in case Mm. we got it, we would not die would be reassuring. They never capture that. They just look at, oh, a person comes in sick with COVID. What is the value of their life? How much would it cost to take care of them otherwise? What did this drug you know, save in healthcare costs and the value of their life? And you know, what's the right price? So for remdesivir, the only drug that's been approved uh, for emergency use for the treatment of COVID, they concluded it's worth $5,000. And yet, how reassured do all of us feel knowing that that drug even exists? Mm. That it's the beginning of progress towards more drugs that maybe are like it, but better.
0: Peter, when we talk about treatments, how do we make the? How do you approach treatments versus vaccine?
2: The truth is, a vaccine will probably never be a hundred percent effective. I don't think it's going to eradicate COVID. But if you could just reduce the severity of COVID, the frequency of severe COVID, and the severity of it when you get it by like ninety percent across the population, that would go a long ways towards making it less scary, mm. right? And then if you have drugs that for those people that do get sick, don't worry, keeps you from dying, you know, or it reduces your chance of death by another 90 percent, you combine between those two things, you've just made covid 100 times less scary. So uh, it's important to think about. Remember, we started talking about chess pieces, right? Yeah. So there's a certain way in which we can combine the chess pieces, make sure that we're all getting the vaccine. And I mean, like all. People talk about, well, what's the critical mass that we need to achieve herd immunity? And, you know, uh, you maybe have heard like the number 60 percent. Yeah, sure. 60 percent is good. But, you know, 80, 90 or 100 percent is better because when the virus has no quarter, there is no person that it can easily replicate in, then the benefits compound.
0: Do you think that everyone will? I mean, I think in in countries that have centralised public health systems uh, where it's free, mostly free to the end user, that, that it'll be pretty easy to vaccinate everybody in Australia. I think th- there might be yeah, your, five, it'll, your it'll, 5% it'll, of it'll anti-vaxxers who don't want it, but I think everyone will get it. But in the States, what are your prognostications yes, I, about the vaccine and then how will it actually be administered and will it be free
2: so here's the thing. As messed up as the U.S. healthcare system is, it's not totally stupid. Um, we uh, we do offer like free flu vaccinations to everybody, even the uninsured. Right. So when it comes to a, a contagious agent, we understand that making sure that everybody, you know, uh, gets a vaccine is good for everybody. Um, now, when it comes to cancer, if there's a poor person who has cancer, well, that's OK, because that's not going to give me cancer. Um, you know, and that's a you know, twisted mentality. But unfortunately, that's the kind of mentality we've got in the U.S. You, mm. you guys are better about it. Mm. Um, so I think a vaccine is going to be available, you know, for free, widely, in hopefully every country on earth. But even the United States, I can't believe I just had to say that. And <laughs> and I think that vaccines are going to start to become available towards the end of this year. However, that doesn't mean that you and I should be like, oh yay, you know, uh, we get to go, you know, uh, club hopping. Um, towards the end of this year because it's, it's going to take a while to get to the massive number of doses uh, that will allow it to get to kind of ordinary people like us. Hmm. Um, you know, the first doses of the vaccine are going to go to frontline workers, the most vulnerable people. And, you know, frankly, if our leaders are really strategic, if they really play chess well, they will map out, for example, a school system where you have kids that go home and uh, everybody in their household is young and healthy, right? they got young parents. Mm-hmm. And those uh, families won't need the vaccine right away. They're not the most urgent. But you could open up the school, and those kids are going to be able to start going to school. However, they will, be, uh, they will have classmates who will go home to a house that maybe has an older person in it. And so if you really want to restore the function of that school and allow all the kids to go in, you will find all the vulnerable members of those households and you will vaccinate them and the mm. people they live with and those and maybe even the kids. So the kids naturally seem to be uh, sort of a little less likely to get infected and pass it on. And that will allow that whole school to feel, you know, maximally protected, both by the low risk status of some households uh and the vaccinated and now therefore lower status of the other households. But if you just do it like, well, everybody whose name starts with A get yeah. vaccinated. You know, I mean, this is another this is,
0: this is another gripe that I have. I mean, when I was living in in the states, I had m- many concerns about the way that the health system is run there, which is not to take away from the great things that it also does. But this sort of centralized prioritization is also something that isn't very good because it's such a patchwork in the U.S. I mean, in when when coronavirus testing was still scarce and that was being ramped up in you know February and March, uh, the Australian government had had exactly what you're talking about a kind of a a list of who is able to to get it so it started off with have you been overseas in the last 14 days and you have a cough then it was just have you been in overseas in the last 14 days or do you have a cough then it was and gradually that ramped up to to the situation where we're now in where anybody can get it for any reason if they just feel like it for free and one of the concerns that I was speaking to an American colleague about that he had about the way the American testing was rolled out was this hodgepodge of labs and a hodgepodge of different health insurers meant that if you had great health insurance and you were paranoid, you could get a test. But if you were actually at risk, that didn't necessarily mean that you were going to get a test.
2: Yeah, you're right. The U.S. system is pretty patchy. I mean, you, you've got the problem of, for example, in the case of hepatitis C, we developed a, a pill. Uh, you know, by we, I mean you know, the drug industry, humanity, we've got a pill that can cure hepatitis C. And private insurance companies, you know, insure people up to age 65 in the U.S. The trouble is that hepatitis C will destroy your liver and, you know, cause you to need a liver transplant, typically after you're 65. Right. Uh, And so technically speaking, private insurance companies were not really saving themselves any money. We're not avoiding the cost of a liver transplant uh, by spending money on these expensive hepatitis C cures. And yet. Any kind of system that looked at the total cost would be like, it is such a bargain for us to just cure everybody of hepatitis C, uh, you know, than Mm. to, you know, wait, A private insurance company that has a bunch of like 55 year olds that are, uh, hepatitis C positive. It's like, look, if I spent right now $50,000 on this cure for your hep C, you know, it'll cure you, but it'll save Medicare money because it'll prevent you from needing a liver transplant when you're 67. Right. Right. Yeah. It's like, well, yeah, that's the right thing to do. And the private insurance company is like, yeah, but I'm not going to save any money. It economically doesn't make sense. And it's like, you know, I'm pretty sure that I hired you to look after me and not your bottom line. (laughs) So just pay for the damn drug.
0: Let's stay on um, on coronavirus vaccine. Your expectation is not that it would be like the measles where where it would protect you essentially 100 percent, but it would be a bit more like a flu shot.
2: Um, sort of. I, the funny thing is about the measles is that uh, it really only protects people about 50 percent. But because everybody got it. Oh, really? It basically protects all of us 100 percent. And the risk is when you've got anti-vaxxers that for whatever reason, you know, think that they're doing their kids a favor by not vaccinating them. They are not only putting their kids at risk, uh, but they these kids turn into these bioreactors that are spewing, shedding, uh, measles virus and overcoming the infection, the immunity, even of some of the kids that have been vaccinated. Mm. Right. So, you know, that's why any school that, you know, wants to say, look, we're just not letting kids in who have not been vaccinated for measles is, uh, you know, completely in the right from a public health standpoint, they are right. So what, which vaccines
0: do provide basically hundred percent protection?
2: You know, because vaccines should not be thought of as just protecting the person that they are infecting, they really are a public health measure. I don't know, wow. I never really thought of mm. that, right, but uh. You know, yeah, that's. I don't. That is amazing, it isn't is it. it?
0: I mean, I've just assumed that like polio and smallpox and things provide 100% protection. But you're right. I guess it's if it's a public health thing, then it, it comes back a little bit to to the conversation we we're having earlier. There are a lot of ways to skin a cat. You don't actually have to have 100% protection if it's going to be widely adopted and you're going to get herd immunity. That's so,
2: that's right. And I'll share with you this. Like, certainly, the flu vaccine is is a good example of that. Like, it really helps for many people to get vaccinated. In the U.S., it's just under 50% of people get get vaccinated uh, with the flu vaccine you know we would be so much more effective uh, at saving ourselves and saving you know some people from dying I think we've got like 60,000 people a year or so that you know die from from the flu um, uh, maybe I'm I'm it's I mean, it's, it's well, in a, in, a, no, in a
0: very bad year, it's like 50 to 60, but in I think in most years, okay. it's like 30 to 40. I mean, the fact yeah, that right. that number is so yeah. high has also been endlessly frustrating to me because it enables uh kind of coronavirus skeptics to be like, Well, come on, I mean, that many people die of the flu. To which I say, yeah, Yes, and it's, it's really, really bad, well, <laughs> and it yeah, would be way, way worse if nobody got the got flu shots and it was a brand new flu that nobody had any immunity against.
2: That's that's exactly it, you know, and we and we don't need to accept that as a status quo, you know, we can actually combat that and there are companies that are making better flu vaccines but really if you make them and you still have half the population that's like nah, not feeling it you know then you're not using the product right you're the product hasn't been actualized the product is we invent a vaccine and everybody gets it now that's the product
0: what how do you see
2: yeah because I partially answer your question we'll get the first doses of vaccine I believe by the end of this year Um, and, uh, it'll go to frontline workers, maybe, you know, vulnerable people, and then you're going to start to really turn, uh, up the production and start to get to the point where I believe we're going to see, you know, a hundred, you know, 200, uh, million courses of vaccines produced per quarter. So in the first quarter of next year, you could plausibly see a couple hundred million courses of vaccine. Now there'll be different kinds. There'll be maybe a nanoparticle, some mRNA, some adenoviral vector vaccines. We're going to see which vaccines are best. I think it'll be quite interesting when we're clamoring for vaccines, when countries are like, I want to open up, I want vaccines. And it's like, all right, well, actually, the best one has been claimed by this country. You know, you can wait for more doses to be made. You know, you can wait three months or we've got second best. Mm. That'll be interesting. So do you expect that that there
0: will be multiple vaccines? Uh, Because, I mean, yeah,
2: you know, if you go on our website and you download that map that I told you about, um, uh, you will see how many vaccines there are. It's amazing. The number of people working on all these vaccine chess pieces is, you know, tremendous. Dozens and dozens of companies that are working on this. Realistically, not that many credible efforts. Um, but I would say that there are probably ten credible efforts out there. And so odds are, you know, we have lowered the bar for uh, getting these vaccines to market, um, which mean, and we've provided a ton of funding from, you know, other sources like CEPI and BARDA and other institutions to augment the private capital that's going into this. And so I think that uh, you're going to see um, a decent handful. You know, maybe uh, four. Uh, or five, cross the finish line. Um, and is know, it like, are they likely to
0: be the kinds of things where you need to get boosters or where the vaccine needs to be tweaked from year to year or you need a new, a new version, or you know, do you think it's a wham-bam?
2: So, so, so yet, yes and no. First of all, um, it, it's yet another thing that I tweeted about a while ago. Um, you know, I, I've written a lot of these science explainers, um, and uh, one of them um, I explained that um, flu mutates. It mutates, and therefore we're constantly chasing a criminal, trying to get the latest mugshot of a criminal that keeps getting, uh, you know, facial reconstruction surgery. <laughs> right? Keeps getting a nose job, uh, a new
0: nose job every year. Exactly,
2: you know, and sometimes the virus just totally changes its face; it's completely uh, different from anything we've seen before. And that's when you get a pandemic flu. It's just too radically different, right? And flu, you know, it has its genetic code on eight separate pages, eight separate segments of RNA. And those swap you know they're like mr potato heads two viruses infect the same cell and they'll swap body parts hmm. and what comes out is like radically different looking viruses well covid sars 2 uh its genome like all coronaviruses is on just one page so you might get typos you know as you copy it you know mm-hmm. you can get a little smudge it slightly changes uh, the meaning of the code and occasionally there's a much more rare kind of event that happens called recombination where essentially Uh, a page gets uh, ripped in half and another page gets ripped in half and the top part of one gets combined with the bottom uh, part of the other. But it's, you know, it's just a rarer kind of event. And so essentially COVID doesn't mutate as radically or as quickly as flu does. It will mutate some and it's possible in the future we may have to modify our vaccine, but we're going to have a long lead time on that. Uh, And uh, the vaccine that we invent to treat the the SARS-2 that we see today is very likely to be the same one that we're going to be using in the future. However, I do think we're going to need booster shots, um, not in the same way as with flu. With flu, every season, you get a different shot. It's both boosting your immunity, but also sort of redirecting it to the latest right. snapshot of the criminal. You know, but in the case of COVID, it's simply a reminder. Right. Hey, uh, cells, hey, police, remember, this is what the criminal looks like, because there's something about coronaviruses and really respiratory viruses, where our immune system seems to be kind of forgetful. It remembers them for like a year, maybe two. But we've seen that even with the four coronaviruses that circulate normally every season and cause our common colds, um, people will be immune for, you know, a year and then you start to see that they can get reinfected uh, mm. after that. It, that doesn't mean that it's the same serious infection. I mean colds are not serious infections to begin with, but I'm sure if you got re-exposed to the same cold that you got over uh, a year ago, it would be milder. And if you got exposed to it five years later, well, then it might be a little more serious because your immune system has probably forgotten even more, right, and so in the case of SARS-2, there's a decent chance that our immune system is not gonna remember the vaccine well, which is okay, because we're just gonna combine the SARS-2 vaccine uh, with the flu vaccine, uh, and the flu vaccine is not even one vaccine. It's actually four vaccines uh, against four strains of flu. It's mm. basically just not sure what the criminal is going to look like. So I've got four mugshots of four, <laughs> you know, candidate criminals that I think might show up. That's pretty good. We used to have one, two, three. Now we've got four mugshots. We'll just add a fifth mugshot of what coronavirus, of what uh, SARS two looks like. Right. So we're going to call it instead of quadrivalent. You're going to hear about pentavalent vaccines. Hmm. Now, some of the same companies that are in the lead for making the you know, uh, coronavirus, the SARS-2 vaccine, are actually not the best equipped to come out with a pentavalent combination flu and SARS-2 vaccine. Remember, I was talking about chess, right? You, know, you start to see the pieces have to come together. And so keep an eye on those companies that maybe are not you know, the, the, um, you know, the rabbits running ahead of the, ter- the tortoise you know, uh, to win the race, But they are, you know, slower, more methodical uh, and better equipped to come out with the vaccine that we're likely to be getting for the long run. Yeah, right. I want to share one really cool feature about developing a uh, SARS-2 vaccine. Yep. SARS-2 is scarier than the flu. I hope we can all agree on that. Right. And uh, what I hope is that in the coming future, when you have pentavalent vaccines, people are going to rush to get them because they're scared of SARS-2, even if maybe they've been a little blase about the flu. Mm. And so they will get the flu vaccine, even though they didn't take the flu vaccine all that seriously in past years. Could it actually be that in the long run, we have a higher vaccination rate against the flu that then ends up saving a lot of lives Mm. from the flu? And over many years, maybe the number of lives saved because more people are getting flu vaccines will end up being greater than the number of lives lost due to covid
0: that's interesting and not (laughs) just a higher vaccination rate against the flu peter but also a lower transmission rate because our behavior will be changed indefinitely i think i mean i'm not going to go back to shaking people's hands i'm going to always just feel like socially distancing anyway even once we are vaccinated i think it's a new normal and we'll probably be less infectious
2: you're exactly right. You know, bless you for saying that. Uh, you know, as a virologist, I've been actually fighting for a number of years this handshaking thing, and I keep caving because it's just too awkward. <laughs> people are like, "Oh, are you sick?" I'm like, "No, I'm sane. Like, why yeah. would you want to shake hands with people?" Right? well, in any case, mm. the the point is uh, that means that if the world will end up uh, with more lives saved as a result of this infection, then it's kind of like a vaccine. Right. In fact, we used to give people a weakened form of smallpox, right, in order to save them from smallpox. Mm. Right. And it did mean that some people died from, you know, exposure to that smallpox, but uh, you know, the uh, the end result was that many lives were saved. And so uh, this is an old form of vaccination. We don't really do that anymore. Um, but uh, what this means is that if you think of the sars 2 pandemic as a vaccine that trained us that we learned from, that we said, oh, wow, this is a wake-up call. We've got to vaccinate ourselves. Oh, and mind you, we should probably start developing drugs against all these other types of viruses that are out there um, that might lead to the next pandemic, Mm. right? You know, there's dengue and there's, uh, uh, you know, phyloviruses and there's flaviviruses, uh, which is what dengue belongs to. But anyway, uh, there's so many different types of viruses. We should develop drugs preemptively so that if one hits, we can be pulling the next remdesivir off yeah. you know, uh, the shelf and quickly responding to that. In other words, we will build this fire department for ourselves in case our town catches fire and we will all sleep better at night. Yeah. So if you think of this as a wake-up call, then it's a vaccine, right? The trouble is that some people have really weak immune systems. You show them the mugshot, you show them a danger, and they don't react. You know, Their immune systems don't react. That's terrible, right? Right? Except we're actually in control of whether or not we're going to learn from this, Mm. right? This isn't like some weird function of our immune system. This is our brains. Mm. Are we going to learn the right lessons from SARS and from COVID and therefore protect ourselves much better from flu and everything else that's out there and save far more lives for the rest of human existence than uh, COVID ever took?
0: Yep, and there's a whole other conversation about not just on the medical side of things and the behavioral side of things, but like the agricultural side of things. And are we gonna are we gonna do what needs to be done to reform the way that we interface with wild animals? Uh, and you know, because if if you continue to behave the way that uh, the way that we're behaving in industrialized agriculture, and especially in the developing world, I imagine that you, you, then you're just shuffling the the deck of cards, and eventually uh, you're gonna pull I, another joker out, right?
2: I, I'm with you. I mean, it's some of these artificial meat products um which i've tried them some of these uh, like the impossible burger is delicious mm. right they're made from plants
0: not just plant-based stuff but even actually producing lab grown meat uh you know i've interviewed exactly. pe- people like paul right. shapiro who's at the forefront of this and uh, he really thinks that we're going to be able to to manufacture actual meat genuine actual meat without oh, a, without a sentient creature
2: In time, we will. And when we do that, if, you know, we can uh, get away from having to have all these chickens, that's fewer animals for flu to breed in, right, in close proximity to humans. Yeah, there's all sorts of ways that these technologies come together on this chessboard to ultimately, you know, make things better. But we got to keep investing in them, right? We got to have a, a, you know, a healthy respect for what scientists can do.
0: Uh, I
2: really hope this you and i had converted a few kids to wanting to become scientists yeah
0: absolutely no i i I am super respectful of your ability to to make these things sound cool and to describe them in ways that don't sound like they're abstract and wonky to people who don't understand the underlying science um so on this on this optimistic note uh peter thanks so much for your time it's great to talk to you My,
2: my pleasure thanks very much for the opportunity